I still have a lot of straw back there and I want to spin it into gold before I'm set free. So that's really what motivates me. Welcome to American Spark. I'm A. Lily Lee. On this episode, writer Phyllis Thoreau. They used to say idleness is the devil's workshop. No, idleness is when you start thinking of good ideas. It's when you're busy and distracted that the devil has a heyday. Phyllis Thoreau has written plenty of books. She's known for her essays and memoirs. You might have seen her as a contributing essayist on The News Hour on PBS. She's currently at work on a new book, a collection of true stories told in conversations called Are You Sitting Down? And we did sit down with Phyllis to talk about her writing and the creative process. In your long career of book writing and being a contributor to the NewsHour on PBS and all of the wonderful things that you have done as a writer, I'm interested to know what is it that you had to have so badly that you were unstoppable? All right. Well, are you ready for this? I didn't want a career. I wanted to be a perfect person and I wanted to have a wonderful marriage. And when I got a book contract after my marriage fell apart, I thought, oh, great. I get to hand over my life for a book. I thought it was really a bad deal. (laughs) And it took me years to realize that it was not a bad deal. So you're not really talking to somebody who was burning with ambition to get out there on a stage that was any larger than the one I was on. I just had deeply unrealistic ambitions about who and what I wanted to be on that little stage, which was essentially a saintly person that everybody adored. And that just did not work out. And when it didn't work out, I started writing. And that did. So there you are. I backed into my career. Paul Thoreau is a relative through that marriage. You could say that. Was that an influence to you or had nothing to do with your own writing? I would say it had nothing to do with my writing. Um, Actually, I kept the name Thoreau, which was my married name, because I liked it a lot better than my maiden name. I still do. So I figured, well, I'll keep that. I have a friend whose marriage ended, and she, too, decided to keep her married name. And I thought the reasoning behind it was really interesting. She said, because because my father was a, an SOB, and so I'd much rather be aligned with this family. Well, no, I'd already started my career as a writer, so to have to change my name when I didn't have anything else to earn a living by was a little unrealistic. Let's get into technology, because, you know, you tap into the web, hit the right vein, and boom, you have a mass audience. But technology brings drawbacks as well. Well, let's first talk about what's good about it. I think it has greatly expanded my circle of friends. I mean, most of the people I know, other than my immediate family, I know because I met them through the web. So that is a huge plus. Um, The minus is is that it's a very impersonal uh, medium. And I am continually fighting with the people I do know in person to tell them to get off of Facebook, to call me up. I do not want to text. You know, the the kind of information emotionally and intellectually that is delivered by the human voice is 100% greater than what's delivered through a text or through a um, an email. All the millennials are carrying around texts like they're an appendage to their anatomy. So here we are connecting through texts, boys and girls breaking up through texts. Mm -hmm. How is this informing how we relate to one another? Well, I think it gives us the feeling that we have a larger life than we do and that we are connected to people in a deeper way than we are. But in reality, 
pretty much everyone that you connect to through Facebook, they're dispensable. They're people, it's like, oh, I can, you're, you're almost a voyeur in people's lives. You don't have to go to high school reunions because you can check out what they're doing online. I'm of the opinion that our narcissism is being brought out in the worst way. Oh, Look at me. Here's what I'm doing. This is the next thing I'm doing, and I'm doing this now. And by the way, I did this. Well, I think that the only thing that's really true in life is that we're all connected. I've known that for a long time. And I think that the technology that we're using now has an odd way of disconnecting us, making us uh, more insular, which causes us to become more self-absorbed, which is why I love power outages. You know, the streets are suddenly full of people who can't use their computers and we're out there grilling, you know, meat that's going to go bad if it, we don't use it. And it's just like, oh, I wish we could just do this all the time. But unfortunately, the Dominion plugs us all back in and we're back in the house <laughs> not talking to each other. What about trends now in book publishing? People aren't reading as much. And again, that goes back to what we were saying earlier, that w people read differently. Their eyes have a different way of looking at a page, and they spot read. They jump around, and so it's harder to get people to actually sit down with a book. I'm in a book club, but two or three people that I think should be in a book club aren't because they can't find the strength to pick up a book and read it. When I was a teenager, I was enthralled by Evelyn Wood speed reading. I wanted to become one of those people. I just couldn't. And now I see the value of not being able to do that because I really do cherish the words on the page and how they were formed and admire the care that goes into creating a written page. Well, and running underneath that is, I think, something very, very important. And my friend, the poet Naomi Nye, said this one time, and I just cheered her on when I read it. She said, life is... Short, we must move very slowly. And that's so true. And she also eliminated the word busy from her vocabulary, which I eliminated years ago. You know, she, people call her, oh, you must be so busy. No, I'm not. They don't know what to say. It's sort of like a badge of popularity to be busy. But I think busyness is, a, is the devil's way of keeping us from ever stopping to think about anything. They used to say idleness is the devil's workshop. No, idleness is when you start thinking of good ideas. It's when you're busy and distracted that the devil has a heyday. That goes to the creative process. For you, it has to be about being quiet. And yeah. We all know that it's a solitary endeavor, writing is. So I imagine that for you as an extrovert, it's very clear for you when you're in your writing mode and when you are in your public mode. True. And uh, the great temptation is to not be distracted. You know, I mean, I have one, an essay in this book, for instance, which is about how I am addicted to laundry. And particularly when my IQ is sliding downhill upstairs when I'm trying to write something, I oh, I have got to iron those dish towels. Oh, I have got to fold those sheets. So yeah, the mind has got to do something. We're always doing something. It's just the level at which you're doing it. Writing is a fairly high level of mind work. And so I'm always wanting to go a little lower. That's why gossip is so wonderful. You don't even have to think when you do that. I told you that I wanted to talk a little bit about The Journal Keeper. Mm -hmm. I love your mother in this book, and I want you to share with us how she dealt with the ghosts. You're talking about the ghost uh, at the <laughs> when we were in Martha's Vineyard in the old house, and there was a ghost that apparently was on the third floor, and everybody heard it. He was rattling chains. He apparently lived there at some point. Well, one day, 
my mother was outside smoking a cigarette because you couldn't smoke in the house. And somebody came running out. This is one of my seminars. One of the students came running out. <gasps> I've heard him. He's upstairs. It's freaking me out. My mother ran inside, put a chair down at the bottom of the stairs, and sat there with her legs crossed. And she said, it's all right. You may go on. You are free to leave. And she gave him all of this sort of new age dialogue about how, you know, this was a person who was trapped in his life and it was all right to move to the next level. And uh, we never heard from the ghosts again. And she would see them. I remember one time we were in, uh, what was it called at that time? Ucrops, Ucrops supermarket. And she said, I said, I'll meet you in the vegetable counter. Go get your prescriptions and meet me there. And she, she could see enough so she could do that. So she finally comes up to me, and she sort of grabs my arm, and she said, oh, thank God I found you. I said, well, what's wrong? And she said, this store is so full of spirits, I can't see. I had to finally just stare at the floor so that I didn't see them. They were just floating up and down the aisles. So, uh, yeah, she had a very active spirit life towards the end. But she, as I say, did not make anything of it. It was just another aspect of life. Your mother is exalted in this book. I would be remiss if I didn't bring up your son, the actor Justin Thoreau, writer too. Mm-hmm. Creativity flows in that family it of yours. It does. It does. How is Justin doing? He's doing well. He's doing very well. He's sort of he was doing a lot of acting up until recently, and now he's sort of exercising the keyboard again. So that's kind of fun. He's done a lot of screenplays, but he's back to that, and he's writing one of his own. So that's nice. And has fine art talents too. Well, what can I say? He's a polymath. (laughs) So, Phyllis, I asked you to bring a quote that you enjoy. What did you bring? I brought a quote by Kurt Vonnegut, who I actually knew, not well, but well enough to um, feel like he's a friend or was a friend. And uh, so that's the quote I brought. It hangs on my wall in my writing cottage. So I just tore it off and made a copy and would be happy to share it. What you can't see is a picture of Kurt, who is sitting there in his bare feet in his pajamas in a totally messy office, writing something. So here it is. You practice an art to make your soul grow, not to make money or to become famous. And this would include singing in the shower or dancing to the radio or also drawing a caricature of your best friend or whatever. All this makes your soul grow. And you meet a person who's done that, whether successful or not, and you sense a larger soul. So that's what's so tragic about school committees cutting art out of school curriculum, because they think they're making art is not any way to make a living. This is good. I'm intrigued that you knew Kurt Vonnegut. Well, I sort of backed into knowing him. His wife is a photographer, and uh, I reviewed one of her books for the New York Times. And uh, she called me up after that, and then we, we sort of became friends. And then one thing led to another, and next thing happened, we were all friends. And I'm going to name drop on your behalf. I was also so stunned to learn that you knew Roger Mudd. Oh, yes. We were old friends, old friends from when I lived in Washington. And he came to your wedding? He did. He and EJ came, trekking down from McLean. And I cut him a break. I didn't make him give a toast, which I think he was expecting to have to do, but I let him just sit there and enjoy himself instead. We had a backyard neighborhood wedding. It was really fun. 
I think it's so much better, Phyllis, that our friendship came to be without my knowing all of your connections. I didn't even know about Justin. We had had dinner in downtown Richmond one night. I went home that night, randomly turned on Romy and Michelle's high school reunion. Oh, my favorite movie movie with him in it. And at the very end. I'm watching the credits and I see Thoreau. I'm like, Justin, huh? I wonder if she's related. To... <laughs> and that's when I called you up and said, <laughs> I didn't know your son. I think it's so funny because, you know, Justin when Thoreau. I first, when I was very small, what I wanted to be was a famous child movie star. And I had all of these fantasies about how it was going to happen and how I was going to attract the attention of a talent scout. And, of course, it didn't quite work out that way. And then my son winds up being becoming part of that world. So he just sort of did it for me, you know. (laughs) I just sort of follow behind him and see what it's like. So, Phyllis, set us up with your current project. Tell us what this is about. Well, my current project is another book, which is a kind of an anthology, but it's got new things as well as old in it, of essays, which seems to be what I like to do best, but also a new kind of form of essay, which I've never seen before, which is put in conversation form. So it's called Essays and Conversations from the Center of the Universe. That's sort of the subtitle. And then the title is Are You Sitting Down? Love that. How different is this from your last project, The Journal Keeper? Very different. The Journal Keeper was just literally culling from my own daily journal. It was a memoir. It it was a memoir in journal form. Yeah, this is not. This project sounds so exciting, and you're going to share with us today an excerpt. This is the section of called Conversations, talking to people like makeup ladies and 800 operators and IRS agents. This one is called Talking to the Foam Rubber Specialist. I grew up in a family that mostly talked about each other. It was our specialty, the way other families specialize in talking about cars or golf or the miracle of compound interest. The other thing we liked to discuss was IT with a capital I which is everything unknowable except through meditation or your third eye. But every once in a while, I run into someone who reminds me why talking to somebody who knows everything there is to know about one thing and one thing only is such a deep delight. The year this happened was 1992. Bill Clinton had just been elected president, a fact which comes into this conversation later on. Not long ago, I needed a piece of foam rubber. It turned out that possibly the best foam rubber company on the East Coast was only a mile away, and I drove right over to Foam to Size Warehouse. Oh, we love what we do, said Al Bulldog Montgomery, who had just deeded the business over to his son, Sandy. He's a dear, sweet boy, and he knows everything there is about foam, said Mr. Montgomery. And the fact that he has just given me a beautiful grandson has absolutely nothing to do with my decision. I asked Mr. Montgomery if he had been in foam all his life. He said no, that he's sold cemetery plots, knives, men's pants, and furniture. Furniture and foam, he said, are two things where the customer can get cheated. How? Simple. You pick out one sofa with one type of foam cushion on the floor, and then they send you another made with cheaper stuff and breaks down quicker from the warehouse. How can I protect myself? You've got to ask what the foam's ILD, that's the indentation load deflection is. That's how many times it will deflect the weight put upon it. He pointed to the piece I had picked out. What you're buying, for example, has a 60-pound ILD, so a 240-pound man could lie on it for 20 years and it would never deteriorate. (laughs) Until meeting Mr. Montgomery, I had thought foam rubber was just a one-celled organism like shaving cream. 
that differed more in volume than variety. Mr. Montgomery attempted to set me straight. We carry everything from powder puff soft to concrete hard. What's the latest foam on the market, I asked. Reticulated. Water runs right through it. It's good for lawn furniture, aquariums, air conditioners. I'm looking at my own piece of foam with more respect, I confessed. Don't get me wrong, said Mr. Montgomery. What you're buying is not quite top of the line. What is? Pincor, he said. Pincor is the cordon bleu of foam rubber, but the only place that made it was a factory in Connecticut, and it got bombed by the mafia in the 70s. I had no idea foam rubber business could be so dangerous. Mr. Montgomery told me that only last year his own factory had burned down, and he had to start over. But you must have had some insurance, he said. You can't insure foam rubber, he said, because it's so flammable. But I figured it was the Lord's plan for me at this late stage of life, and I didn't ask why. How did you bounce back, I asked. By deciding to stock a higher-grade foam, the D60. My son said, Daddy, they won't pay the difference, but I said, they'll do it, son. I know people. And they did? He nodded. People call and say, Bulldog, I'm throwing all that old stuff away. Send me some D60. We cut a lot of wedges for hospital beds and wheelchairs. All the hospitals have gone with this because it bounces back so fast. The Lord really looked out for me on this one because after the fire, we needed a boost. It was time to leave, and Mr. Montgomery walked me to the car with my purchase. Ah, I guess you're sorry I said about the recent election. Oh, yes, ma'am, but he said you got to put your trust in the Lord and go from there. I guess that's right, I agreed. Mr. Montgomery is a Baptist who doesn't go to church every Sunday, but he prays to make up for it. I'm right with the Lord, I know that, he said. He also supplies to other churches. We cut a lot of church pews. And there's one little Baptist church in the country that made him happy to be in business. When I drove up, I heard him singing. Good singing gets me in the spirit of good thinking, and they were so happy to see good foam. Theirs had all broken down. I thought to myself, I've got to come back here. Very nice. You talk about how this is different. Are you going in there like a reporter and maybe even with a recorder, or is this a different approach? No, it's just a conversation. I might just, I, all of these were totally organic. I was literally going in to get some foam. And <laughs> Mr. Montgomery just charmed the socks off me. And I went home and I just took a few notes in my journal and wound up writing about it. How long ago was that conversation? 92, 1992. This is wonderful. So we could say that you've been at this book for decades. Well, no. You could say that I've been talking to people for decades. And the book just was a sort of a spin-off of my addiction to talking to other people. So, Phyllis, what is it that motivates you? Well, I assume you're thinking what motivates me as a writer more than just in a, in a creative sense. I've always thought that everyone is given certain experiences in their life to do something with. And you know that, that, that story, Rapunzel, I forget where it, what is the name of it? The Rumpelstiltskin, that's the story where the poor princess has to spin all the straw into gold before she's freed from the castle, whatever that. I feel like that's kind of where I am. I still have a lot of straw back there and I want to spin it into gold before I'm set free. So that's really what motivates me. Thanks for listening to American Spark. I'm May Lily Lee. Be sure to like our Facebook page and check out our videos, blogs, and more at americanspark.tv.
things. But I think busyness is the devil's way of keeping us from ever stopping to think about anything. They used to say idleness is the devil's workshop. No, idleness is when you start thinking of good ideas. It's when you're busy and distracted that the devil has a payday. So you're not really talking to somebody who was burning with ambition to get out there on a stage that was any larger than the one I was on. I just had deeply unrealistic ambitions about who and what I wanted to be on that little stage, which was essentially a saintly person that everybody adored. And that just did not 